Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 180 with David Barrett of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am the CEO and host of Founder Podcast and also the Founder Magazine media company. I just wanted to say firstly, Happy New Year. Uh, If you've been following along, uh, it is now officially the new year. We're in 2018 and I hope your new year is off to a great start. You're doing a lot of planning, a lot of prepping. Uh, we got the Founder Team Retreat next week, which I'm really pumped about. Uh, we're actually even flying someone down who's um, going to help roll us. Roll, his name's Zach. He's going to help us roll out a ton of courses. We've got a ton of awesome stuff in store. We got, we're, you know, all the guys in Melbourne, we're going up to the beach. And uh, yeah, we've got a few, a pretty full on session. We've even got a, like a facilitator and, we're going to map out everything for the whole year, track it back, track the numbers. Everyone's going to have their own goals, be accountable. It's going to be crazy. Uh, so I'm really, really excited. We've got a ton of amazing stuff in store for you guys. Oh, the interviews that Joe's lining up, the content we're going to be putting out. I really want to go hardcore on YouTube as well this year. So you're going to see a lot more of me on video and the team behind the scenes. We've got some crazy stuff, guys. So, yeah, I'm really pumped for a massive year. Um, I wanted to share with you as well, there's some a process that I do where what I do is I always write an email to my future self. 
Uh, you can go use a tool. You can go to a website called futureme.org. It's free. And I like to write down my goals and the things that I want to achieve for the year. Um, and just kind of, I know there's something really kind of magical about knowing that you're writing an email to yourself and the excitement of getting it and having those goals and talking to yourself in past tense, like, you know, when you're reading this email, you will have achieved X, Y, and Z. And, you know, you're going to be driving a Tesla Roadster or whatever it is, you know? Um, so yeah, I just thought I'd share that cool one with you. Uh, but let's talk about today's guest. We have started this year with a cranking episode. Uh, it's with David Barrett and he's the founder of a company called Expensify, amazing SaaS company, very, very fascinating guy. Uh, he gave me some great tips on, and I'm not going to share with them with you. You got to listen, but he gave some great tips on, essentially how to maintain a great culture for a remote working team or a hybrid remote working team and the kind of crazy strategies that he's putting in place uh, to get people to do their best work. And, you know, it's really cool stuff. I'm going to use them in Founder. He also talked about how his company has no customer acquisition strategy. They don't pay any money uh, a paid customer acquisition strategy that don't pay any money on paid acquisition and his thoughts around product and growth and really, really interesting guy. He uh, built a company as well. So he, all he does is build, build companies. He built a company with uh, uh, Travis Kalanick, uh, you know, the ex, uh, the founder of Uber and ex-CEO of Uber. So yeah, very, very smart guy. David is. You're going to learn a lot from him. I know you're going to love this episode. If you are enjoying these episodes, uh, please do take the time to leave us a review. It helps more than you can imagine. I know you must have some friends that are founders. Please do share it with you know, some of your other founder friends and uh, you know, spread the word. We really are on a mission to build a household name, entrepreneurial brand that impacts the lives of tens of millions of people on a weekly basis with our content. So we can't do this without you guys. All right, that's it from me. Now let's jump in the show. I hope you have a fantastic start to your new year and I hope you enjoy this episode. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? How did I get my job? I mean, that's a, that's, that's a good question. So, uh, so do you mean this current job or my first job or which job? Yeah, just what you're doing right now. Like, how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Well, hmm, that's an interesting way of phrasing it. I guess, I mean, I, it's certainly part of the path. I mean, like uh, the whole journey, if you will, every step along the way just has to make sense in context. And it's all trying to take me, I guess, towards a much bigger sort of opportunity in the future. And so I got my job in the same way that all the other previous steps along the paths. And it's that it just was the next thing that made the most sense uh, to help kind of towards that journey. Hmm. I see. So before co-founding Expensify, like, is this your first startup? Um, yeah, it's just like, can you give our audience like how long have you been doing startups? Uh, what was your first startup? Um, how, how did you find yourself? Yeah, just building a, building businesses. So I have sort of an unlikely background for being an expense report magnate, if you will. Uh, I, I started programming when I was six, mostly computer graphics and video games. Um, throughout middle school and high school, I got 3D graphics engines. And then I uh, worked in the virtual reality lab at the University of Michigan wrote 3D graphics engines into the game industry down in Texas for a while. Then I got into uh, 
uh, voice over IP, a video conferencing, screen sharing technology, then peer-to-peer -peer content distribution. So my, my background's always been in kind of like very hard technologies. And then when my last company was acquired, so basically um, I was doing a company called uh, iGlance, which is a push to talk sort of video conferencing application that just got obliterated by Skype because I mean, Skype was uh, made by the founders of Kazaa. Kazaa mm. uh, basically had like 200 million desktops using their pirate tool. And then just one day they installed Skype in all of them. And so it's very hard to compete with that distribution model when your competition just like pushes out 200 million desktops in the same day. And so while I was licking my wounds from that as approached by a guy named Travis Kalanick. He hired me in his last startup called Red Swoosh. And then uh, he hired me, I hired everyone else. And then uh, we built some technology in the peer-to-peer -peer content distribu distribution space we were acquired by Akamai. And uh, the day after acquisition from Akamai, like, I knew I just wasn't gonna last long. And so um, I was trying to think like, what's, you know, what's something else I can do? What's, what's the next big thing, if you will? And at the time, I actually lived in uh, San Francisco in the Tenderloin. And so I walked by the same homeless people every day. And I, you know, there, there are lots of opinions on this, but I, I'm of the opinion that giving cash to the homeless isn't really the best way to help them. Because uh, there's lots of facilities in San Francisco, but you need to be sober to take advantage of those. And if you're not sober, it's because probably someone gave you cash to buy booze, drugs, whatever it is. And so I'm like, well, I want to give them food. So I would take them into uh, like McDonald's or whatever, which is and a really remarkable experience. I would encourage you to do it exactly once. It's very, very awkward to take a homeless person to a, a fast food restaurant. So I'm like, well, that's, that's not the way. So I think like maybe I can give out sort of gift certificates perhaps, but I'm like, oh, they're just gonna you know, kind of sell those or something. I'm like, no. Um, and uh, it's like, well, I wanna give out, you know, what if I could do sort of a, a, a debit card, but the debit card was sort of locked down to certain merchants. And so I could say like, um, this card works up to $10 a day uh, but only at restaurants. And I'm like, oh, I, I, I can kind of build that. I could imagine that could work. But I'm like, well, but then if, if I'm giving out these prepaid debit cards, there's a bunch of cash on them. I'm like, well, what if um, uh, the, actually the card had no money on it? Um, and every time the card was used, uh, the purchase is routed in real time to my personal credit card. I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. So I could kind of walk around with these cards, hand out these cards. Um, if they get lost or whatever, it doesn't really matter. And I can uh, make sure they're only used at places that don't serve alcohol. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I guess it's kind of an interesting platform for sort of just charity, if you will. And so I went to the banks with this idea and they're just like, whoa, there, there's no way we're gonna help you with this. It's just like too complicated. There's so much technology involved. There's PCI, there's all this like, you know, compliance issues, all these sorts of issues. So like, look, this is just too much work to do this platform. Like, we're just not gonna help you with this. It's just too weird, too risky. I'm like, all right, I need to sound low risk. I need to sound boring. I'm like, what is, the most boring application of these cards I can think of. I'm like, aha, expense reports. So that's really how I got into it. Um, it was like a Trojan horse to get me the permission from the, uh, not just the banks, but MasterCard, this whole supply chain of card manufacturers. It's like, I just need a story that sounded good that explained why I wanted to build this technology, even though I really had no intention of building the expense reporting system. Yeah, I was just, and so I'm talking to these different parties and I'm just making shit up on the fly. Um, like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing called Expensify. It's the, uh, you know, corporate card for the masses. And uh, you give this card to your employees and you can lock down which merchants they go to and get real-time notifications. And also you can have all your employee purchases made on your personal credit card. So you keep all the miles. It's great. And I'm like, oh, well, what about receipts? I'm like, oh, yeah, you just, um, you can uh, text a picture of your receipts in. Uh, this is back in the day before kind of mobile apps were kind of a big thing. Mm. Um 
And, uh, and they get forwarded via email. They're like, oh, well, you know, the iPhone app store just launched. What about that? I'm like, of course, we're going to have an iPhone app too. Um, and it's going to be amazing. And so the story just got you know, grander and grander. And I was like, wow, this sounds like this is going to be an amazing search reporting platform. I'm like, sure, maybe, even though I really did, didn't intend to build it. And then so I launched this uh, kind of proof of concept of the card technology at TechCrunch 50 in 2008. Yes. Um, and everyone's like, wow, your, your cards are interesting and all that, but your expense reports sound amazing. And I'm like, I guess uh, maybe someone's going to build that, but I'm not going to. And then the very next day, MasterCard shut us down, canceled our credit cards. And I was like, fuck, now I'm going to do it. I'm like, well, people seem to really like this expense reporting concept. I, maybe I should just do that. And that's how I got into it was just seeing so many people excited about this sort of fictional concept for an expense reporting company. Even though I did no research into the industry, the market didn't know anything about it, no accounting background. Um, didn't care at all about that industry at the start, but now I realize that it's just such an incredible overlooked opportunity for so long, and we just happen to be in the right place at the right time because the mobile app opportunity just didn't exist prior to that, and we were the only people out there dumb enough to be pitching sort of a mobile expense report receipt capture application when at a time when it made no sense. Like um, I even knew this, which didn't matter. Like the the cameras were so bad you literally couldn't read the receipts because they had you couldn't they weren't designed to take pictures of anything close up but it just didn't matter um and then one day uh, the next iphone had an autofocus camera and then every other fo uh, phone did ever since and so just overnight there was this crystal clear receipt capture um platform with an always-on internet connected in your box and a zero marginal cost user acquisition vehicle of individual employees into a viral upsell model where individual employees uh, download the app for free uh, without asking permission, just start using us. And then every expense report becomes a highly targeted marketing message directly to the decision maker. And then our, the, the, the employees actually do the selling uh, to promote us to their you know, finance team by sort of surrounding them with like pitchforks and torches demanding us by name. And that's become our entire business model. And at this point, Expensify is the second largest expense reporting company in the world, uh, the fastest growing by far, and uh, we have more customers than anyone in the world. And uh, it all happens uh, without any advertising, uh, without any outbound calling, and without any commission salespeople. So it's, it's a very disruptive model that we sort of stumbled into in this market that just really, really needed a new, a new option. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious um, that you said you have no sales team you don't pay for user acquisition. Yeah, that's right. Um, I would say we have a sales team. It's not a commission sales team, but like um, really our sales model is more of a support model because recall it's um, we're pulled into the company by the employees, but the employees don't pay for the product. Uh, it's, it's free for the individual user. It's free for the employee. And so we provide a tremendous amount of support to potential customers, but we provide it ahead of like proactively. And so, and because it's activity-based pricing, you only pay $9 per active user uh, per month. The only way you get active is after you adopt. Um, and so as a result, you talk to our support team, you get fully set up before you start paying us, oftentimes way before you start paying us. And the, um, because the whole enterprise sales model is typically based around the idea of you, you pay for a lead and as such, this lead is really valuable to you. And so you, you wanna maximize the value of that lead and so you have to pay for someone else to go and like beat down that person's door. And they're just begging for this deal and they'll just do whatever they ask for. 
Um, and that, that sort of the enterprise sales model, because it's so painful, it has a sort of commissioned uh, basis around it to have this really aggressive sort of outbound sales technique, uh, which feeds into this very thick product management hierarchy. But because all the salespeople's commissions depend upon making good and the promises, they're basically fighting over engineering resources in this very competitive way. Yes. Uh, and the product management team has to sort of be there to, to sort of referee this whole thing and protect the engineering team from a series of just ridiculous requests. And that's what all enterprise software looks like. And that's why enterprise software sucks is because it's no one's job to make a product that is good for the end user and everyone's job to make a product that can be sold to a decision maker that will probably never use the product. But our company is completely different in that um, we have just uh, thousands of companies starting trials every month for free. Uh, and so our focus is not on trying to like make every one of those convert. Our focus is like, let's find the best of those companies that actually already like what we have, that don't need us to build a whole bunch of things for them, that don't want a different product. They want the product that we're actually currently selling. And we're just going to uh, talk them through the process of onboarding. And it's, uh, it's a very, very different um, kind of sales model. And yes, it sells into the enterprise up until we, everything from, you know, uh, small mom-pop businesses up to the Fortune 500. Like we have customers, tens of thousands of employees, and it all happens using this same sales model. Hmm, that's really interesting. So I'm curious, uh, like, what, what's your biggest challenge right now? Well, it's kind of a, an unusual answer. I would say a uh, uh, biggest challenge, I would say, is avoiding complacency. Um, I would say we are the clear leader of our space, and um, we're growing fast and accelerating, uh, and we're also doing it in a profitable basis, which is just unheard of. The idea that you can have at scale, rapid growth, and be profitable, it's just, people feel like that's just simply not possible, but, but it is. But a challenge of that is when it's like, ever, like we're doing very well, and so it's hard to maintain that sort of drive to keep pushing, to keep showing up early and working late, to keep pressing into new markets and keep expanding the product and so forth. I mean, that's, that's not at all to say that everything's perfect and, and far from it, but it's to say that our problems are not the same kinds of problems that you have early on. Like there are no existential threats to the company. And so there's no outside pressure to perform. It's all just inside pressure. It's like basically we're competing we're just racing against ourselves at this point. And it's hard to maintain kind of that discipline and ambition over the long haul when there's really no external force sort of pressuring you to. Hmm. When you talk about um, that you guys are profitable uh, and you're growing at, at a, an extremely fast pace, I'm curious, uh, how come you don't sacrifice profit for growth? But that implies you can. I think this is, there's all these things that, um, yeah, I think one of the major lessons of Expensify is that there is such a better world out there than what the VCs are telling you. I think the, um, like, let's say I had a book and I'm just like, hey, 95% um, of the people who follow the rules of this book fail utterly. Mm. Uh, you probably say like, that sounds like a shitty book. I, I don't want to read that book. That's not a good book to follow. But yet that's what the VCs are telling you to do. They're basically like, hey, um, you need to raise a ton of money. Uh, you need to spend it super fast. And then you need to raise a ton more money. And don't worry about profit. Don't worry about sustainability. It's all about top line growth. And then you need to exit as fast as you can and just hope that there's someone there. And it's okay if there isn't because it's better to fail fast and then try something new uh, than actually take the time to build a real business that can live on its own. And almost everyone follows that advice. 
and almost everyone fails. Like there are exceptions, of course, but of the thousands of new startups that happen um, every year, hundreds actually exit. And I think the uh, like that's why VCs have a portfolio because they recognize that odds are you're going to fail. Um, that's why they're not putting all their eggs in your basket. Uh, they're splitting their eggs between a huge range of different baskets, and they're taking a path. They're taking a path that drives um, a tiny fraction of them to succeed a ton, recognizing that they're sacrificing the other ninety percent. But that's cool because it's not their money, and it's also the uh, the the returns are based upon the the ten percent who succeed, um, and not the ninety percent who fail. But the thing is, as a founder, you don't have a portfolio. Like you've just got the one shot. You've got all of your eggs in one basket. And so taking advice from someone who has a completely different set of motivations is very dangerous. And I think one of the things that I always tell you is like this whole misnomer that it's like, oh, um, profit is sacrificing growth. It's like, says who? Like we're growing faster than anyone and we don't spend any money in customer acquisition. Like if you could spend money effectively on customer acquisition, there's no shortage of our competition that would have done that. But if it were that easy, any of the dozens of companies that, that we're beating would be doing that. It's maybe possible that it's actually not that easy. Because I think that's a challenge when it comes to customer acquisition, uh, paid customer acquisition, is it really doesn't work that well at scale. It's easy to you know, find the, the low-hanging fruit um, and to do things that like work at small scales. But actually, paid acquisition in a positive ROI fashion on massive scale is very rare. Almost none of the companies you care about have done it. I remember I was talking with this, uh, this is years ago, and I was talking with this uh, you know, VP of marketing at Box, um, yeah. uh, Box. Now it is now. And, um, and he was talking about basically the paid acquisition they would do and like, they're, they're like, oh yeah, we have data on everything. We AV test everything. We run these different campaigns, blah, 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 and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I'm like, wow, this sounds like a really rigorous customer acquisition pipeline that you got here is really amazing and then almost as like an aside at the very end i asked it's like oh and by the way what fraction of your revenue can you attribute to this paid customer acquisition and he said about 30 percent and that's a soft 30 meaning what 75 percent of the revenue comes from sources entirely unrelated to their paid acquisition so almost all of the revenue had nothing to do with paid acquisition but yet, for some reason, we feel like paid acquisition is like the hallmark of success, except Facebook didn't grow because of that. Google didn't grow because of that. Amazon didn't grow because of that. No one that you care about built their business on paid acquisition. And so I think the, uh, uh, I think the, and like the idea that you, that you can't scale profitably, I think, is a fiction that's told by people that don't want you to profit because profit comes at their expense. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so you guys are bootstrapped or you have raised VC or? Yeah, we've raised uh, $27 million, um, which could sound like a lot or a little depending upon where you are. I would say at our scale, that's basically nothing. Um, so I'd say certainly we've raised money over time, but from the very start, we set out to build a profitable business and we've used cash, I would say, uh, to build the business itself in terms of hiring technology and things like this. But I would say the places where we made the biggest mistakes is where we spent money trying to acquire customers on the assumption that it was both very important and also very easy. 
but in fact, I, it's turned out that not only is it not easy at all, uh, it actually hasn't been important. All of our growth has come because we built a product that was designed to grow on its own without paid acquisition. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So like a, like a Dropbox, where it's got the, like the, or Google, like any of these companies that we talked about where, where the, you know, the virality is inherently inside of the product. Yeah, yeah, like um, I'm much reminded of, um, I think something like uh, WhatsApp got to a billion users with I think 73 employees. Um, and I was thinking about that, I'm like, so that didn't happen by accident. Like they didn't do paid acquisition to get a billion users, it just happened. Um, and so people just, they, they'll, they'll hear that and be like, yeah, but that's WhatsApp. That, that can't be your company, that can't be my company. And it's like, well, well, why not? I mean, people do this, the most successful companies do this, but we just don't try to do it ourselves for some reason. Hmm. So talk to me then, like, you know, if you have raised, you know, 27 million, so you have to series A or series B? Well, it was uh, three rounds. So we did a million in 2009. We did 5.7 in 2010. Um, and then it was a couple of years. Um, and then actually maybe it was four rounds. Then we did this um, small kind of strategic investment with a partnership with Barracuda. Um, and then maybe another couple of years or something like that. Um, and then I, uh, we raised 17 million, I think, um, from uh, OpenView, a company out in a VC firm out in, um, in Boston. Um, but even by that time, it's like, I was totally un uninterested in raising. I like, wouldn't take calls um, because our model is very unusual. And um, VCs are very accustomed to understanding what they've seen in the past. And everyone says they want a disruptive model but most don't because disruptive models are like, they're risky, they're hard work, they require creativity. And that, that's just not a scalable thing. And, and a VC firm is, is really about, it's again, it's a portfolio. They need to make as many deals as possible and as broad a base as possible. And so they're not really looking for something that's different, that's unusual. They're looking for more of the same. Uh, most of them are, I would say. And like, and um, because like, so for example, if you ever talk to a VC, they'll tell you with total certainty, like there are the two most important variables that dictate your entire business, uh, your cost to acquire a customer and the lifetime value of that customer. And they'd be like, it's almost inconceivable uh, to yeah. not know those answers. And you go on People a three-one like, CAC. Yeah, you're like, great. So, uh, oh, wow, Sensify seems like it's doing really well. Uh, what's your cost to acquire a customer? And I'm like, well, we don't. Like, we don't pay for customers. So, like, that, that, that question has no answer. It's not zero. It's just that you're asking us like, how much do you like, how much do you spend on hot dogs per user? And I'm like, I don't, I don't buy hot dogs per user. It's like, I just, I just don't do it. It's just this, an activity that we simply don't do. Um, and then they'll be like, okay, well, what if we call, you know, your support costs, uh, customer acquisition? I'm like, well, but they're not. I mean, I can't just double my support team and then suddenly have twice as many sales. That, that doesn't work that way. Like, I, I think that people don't even understand the questions they're asking. And then they'll just, they, but they just require some sort of number. And then like, okay, well, let's talk about lifetime value. Like what's your LTV? Well, LTV is the uh, uh, generally estimated by sort of the inverse of churn. But the problem is we have negative revenue churn, which means that every past group of customers we've ever acquired pays us more today than they ever have. And so not to say they all stick around, but rather to say, those who do stick around more than compensate for those who drop off. And so it's like, mm. okay, so I guess that means our, our, our CAC is sort of zero and our LTV is an infinity. 
sort of the ROI on our non-existent ad spend is like infinity over zero. Like maybe I guess if, if you want to do the math wrong and just keep asking the wrong questions, or this is just a different business model where those, those, those numbers don't mean anything. And I think the idea that CAC and LTV actually aren't that important in this business model just blows minds. And so that's why I just stopped talking to VCs. I'm like, it's just too hard to convince you of this and it's not gonna bother. And I don't actually need your money anyway at this point. So it's like, so whatever. And there's only one open view approach us. And they really, they're a firm that wants disruptive business models. They, they, they understand the concept of negative revenue churn and zero marginal cost customer acquisition. And I think that they were a firm that sought us out because they valued what we were as opposed to being disappointed that we just weren't the next enterprise company. I see. So, so when you when when you've raised capital, uh, you've essentially taken money off the table or d- diversifies risk. No, no, we've we've spent all the money we've raised, and then so I'd say um, we uh, because we've we only really got profitable this year, I would say, uh, and so up until that point, we ran a very lean organization, uh, and we took some big swings on things that didn't work out, like we. We would spend on certain advertising that don't, that wouldn't work. One nice thing about our model is because we're just inundated with leads from the like direct acquisition of customers. Like we would go to these accounting conferences, and our competition would be there, and they really needed those conferences for like leads. They cared about the ROI of that conference. Um, it mattered to them. Whereas we show up and it's just like I don't know, this entire conference actually doesn't matter at all to us. So we're just going to outspend everyone here. Um, we're just going to buy every sponsorship <laughs> and go to the massive booth just because we want to make it clear that it's like, we just want to salt the fields. It's like, I want to make sure that none of our competition can succeed at this conference, even if it's not helping us that much. And, uh, and so we spent a lot of money basically just, um, thwarting the competition, um, in various ways. Did that work? Oh yeah. It worked amazing. Um, now as a result, I'd say in our industry, Concur is the number one. They're by far the biggest. Um, Concur got acquired by SAP recently, the largest SaaS acquisition in history, actually. And, um, and so there's Concur, uh, then there's Expensify, um, and then there's basically four more companies, all of which have recently merged and are still a distant third. And so those are the companies that we basically use these techniques against to try to just obliterate. Hmm, I see. So... Talk to me about you know you 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 said that you you spend money on development and team. Um, one thing that I'm learning while, while I'm building founder is just like to scale a company, it it really is people. Like I've found like product and people. Like you've got to have, of course, you've got to have a great product that you're constantly innovating on, or you know, a great service offering. But it's it's like people make or break. You've got to get the right people on the bus, especially in the early days. What tactics, strategies, advice would you recommend to people to getting the right people on the bus in the early days? Man, it's so hard. And I would say the most important thing is just patience. Patience and a refusal to hire someone who's not great, which it sounds real obvious. It's like everyone says like, oh, yeah, you know, we only want to hire the best people. Because A people hire other A people, whereas B people hire C people. And so it's like, you don't want to start hiring the B people because then you can no longer hire A people. And then your people just want to hire C people because like great people want to work with other great people. Okay people want to work with shitty people because it makes the okay people feel good. And so it's like, but the challenge is great people are incredibly hard to find. 
um, and they're, in, they're highly sought after, especially in the early days, like your, your company sucks. There's like really no objective reason why someone would join it. It doesn't matter how good your idea is or whatever. It's like, it's so small. It's so risky. Like it's so hard to convince people to even give you the time of day. So when you're starting, it's just all about patience and it just building a business that is built on the recognition that hiring is going to be super slow at the start. And if, if you have a business that depends upon fast hiring, man, you're screwed. Or, or rather, that's not true. I would say you can do a business that's depending upon fast hiring, but it's it must also be built on shitty people. And that's cool. Um, you can hire a, you know, a whole bunch of people and do kind of a churn burn sort of sales model. You make them really competitive and all this stuff. It's going to be like a boiler room, awful job. And everyone's going to be unhappy, but you can make money that way, certainly. But if you want to have a company that's built around the idea of, uh, a really high quality team of people who care about each other and uh, isn't just constantly stabbing each other in the face. It's like, you need to be patient and, uh, and, and, and just accept that your business model can't depend upon fast hiring of great people because that's just simply not possible. Mm. All remote or all local? That's tough. I would say, so we started off all local. Uh, now we have offices in, um, uh, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, Michigan, uh, London, Melbourne, um, and then there's a bunch of floaters as well. And so I think if I were going to do it all over again, I probably would do it purely remote. I would bring everyone together once a quarter. I would like pick somewhere in the world and fly everyone in to, to meet up once a quarter. But the challenge is if you're like only somewhat remote, if you have like, you know, um, a dozen people like two of which are remote, it's real tough on those two. There is such a huge disadvantage compared to everyone else. And so it's hot, it's it's easier being all in person or all remote, but in the middle is actually quite quite challenging. Mm. With the all remote, how do you maintain a great culture though? I, I guess I would say I don't know that you can build a culture purely remote. That's why I think it's so important to regularly meet up in person. Um, and I would say like so one thing that we do, for example, is a uh, we take the whole company overseas for a month every year. And so last year we brought, uh, I think like a hundred or this year, sorry, we brought like 120 people to Uruguay. Last year was like Cambodia. And so bringing everyone with their spouses basically out to some exotic place in the world is such a great way to kind of bond in a very intense fashion. Um, a month is a good period of time because it's nice and long. So you can all work together but also to have good times together and like generate really good shared memories. But then when you go back home, then it's like those, you still have kind of the afterglow of all the strength of the relationships that were built in person. And those, those relationships are kind of what carry you through while you're remote. And so long as you just keep doing this regularly, uh, we take our company overseas for, for a month every year, but we also, every quarter, we probably bring everyone together into one place, like uh, to one of our offices or so forth. And so I think culture really depends upon in-person, but doesn't require that you're always in-person. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really smart that, that you guys do that. Um, expensive though, man. Not really. I mean, I would say, um, okay, when we started, uh, the approach was, okay, so it's, it's a question of what the company covers. And so when we started, it was actually, uh, everyone paid their own way for everything. Um, oh, really? Which which sounds expensive and except you realize everywhere all of our employees live is so much more expensive than Cambodia. And so anyone who can afford to live at their home can absolutely afford to live in Cambodia, 
or Thailand or, or Vietnam or a huge range of places that are super awesome places. The only, in fact, now with Airbnb, we would see that um, people would just Airbnb out their apartment in their very high cost living place. And then that would more than cover the cost of them being remote for that month. Um, uh, that's and now I would say the, uh, the company, our current sort of process there is the company will, um, will cover flights because flights are the one thing that's actually kind of expensive, but no one has strong preferences around. But it, and it's basically all the same price, more or less. Whereas um, you're on your own for hotels and food because hotels uh, and food have really diverse types and very wide ranges of prices. But it's all relatively cheap too, uh, because we'd say in hostels and things like this. And so in the end, it's actually not that expensive, not nearly as expensive as people would assume it is because we go to places that are just cheap um, and cheaper than living at home. Mm, that's really smart. Yeah. Question though, wouldn't, um, and look, don't, please don't take this the wrong way, David, but me personally, I would feel a little guilty um, if, if we, we, even if we just paid for flights. Okay. I mean, I, I, I get that. I would say if, so if your guilt is preventing you from doing something amazing, <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> you know, that makes sense. All good. So look, we have to, we have to switch gears and, and start to work, uh, work towards wrapping up because I'm super mindful of your time. But um, just if you were starting again, you said um, that uh, you would probably go all remote. I'm just curious, any other lessons, wisdom, you know, from building uh, a couple of companies now that you wish you knew before you started? I would say the most important thing is to not ask people for advice because it's the likelihood that you're going to get the right advice is so low. Um, instead, I, I found the vast majority of the advice I've received from really, really qualified and well-intentioned people turn out to be really bad advice. And I think the, um, if you're an entrepreneur, it's because you think you're smarter than the next guy, but if you're smarter than the next guy, why are you asking them for advice? Instead, just figure it out. Like, Everything's way simpler than actually I, I, I believed previously. In, in fact, I think most of the complexity is really just sort of invented complexity. I think it's, it's com complexity that serves someone else. Whether it's you talk to a marketing person, they're like, oh, you know, I do demand generation for blah, blah, blah. And I use this EV testing sort of bullshit platforms and all this sort of stuff. And it's just like, man, there's so many, so much lingo there, so much jargon, like all these tools and techniques, they sound really advanced. Your job must be super hard. And then you kind of boil it down and it's like, no, actually, this is just real basic stuff. Like you talk to people, you make a theory, you test it if you can, uh, but otherwise you just give it a shot and figure out what happens. It's like sales, marketing, product management, project management, COO, HR, all of these titles are presented as if they're super complicated fields and that require like, you know, a lifetime of knowledge before you can even start. It's just not true. All this stuff is pretty straightforward if you just refuse to buy into the complexity that is being foisted upon you by people who generally benefit from that complexity, people who want their role to sound more complicated than it actually is, people who are trying to sell you their advice or their books, people are trying to um, sell you their money because they're investors, whatever it is, just don't pay attention. Like, don't ask for advice. Uh, just try, just figure it out yourself because, and I think people often say it's like oh you know uh but then i don't reinvent the wheel it's like dude wheels aren't that hard to build and if you can't build a wheel what makes you think you can build anything better than that it's like reinvent a few wheels it's fine then in the process of doing so uh, you'll build up your own confidence and then 
you'll have basically finally be ready. So when there is something new where there isn't good advice around, uh, you're not going to be constrained because you can't find someone to tell you to go. Like you'll just stop listening and just say, it's like, I'm just going to give it a shot. I don't really care what anyone thinks. And I think that's once you get to that place where you really are willing to bet on your instincts, I think that's where things start to get super fun. Otherwise, you're just constantly slave to the next you know, fad or book or whoever is trying to take advantage of you. Mm, yeah, I love that. That was really cool, man. Awesome, dude. Well, look, um, last question is where's the best place people can find out more about Expensify yourself and your work? It's very easy. Um, search Expensify on the iPhone or Android app stores. Um, you go to Expensify.com, uh, Expensify on Twitter, or just search Expensify in any browser and it'll come up on top. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, David. I really appreciate the conversation and uh, yeah, congratulations on all your success. Great. Thank you so much. And if, if any of your listeners are looking for a job, please give us a call. We'd love to talk to you. <laughs> awesome. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.